How many of you, you can raise your hand on this, how many of you know the name Charles Barkley? Okay, so for those of you who don't know, Charles Barkley was uh, an NBA star, a star in the, uh, in the National Basketball Association, the professional um, basketball association in the U.S. And um, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago he was playing, it's been a while, and then he was, uh, he was on TNT doing, maybe still is, uh, talking between games at halftime. What are, um, anyway, he was pretty popular at the time that he was playing. And at one point he said this, I am not a role model. You're a popular athlete and you're saying you're not a role model. Well, part of what he was getting at, he was trying to talk to parents and say, you parents need to be the role models for your kids. But the fact is, because he was a popular sports star, he was a role model, whether he wanted to be or not. The question is not, well, the question was not, was he a role model? The question was, what kind of a role model was he? Was he a good role model or was he a poor role model? Now, this topic this morning is uh, spiritual warfare, and I uh, I spoke on this somewhere else last week, and I sent out some prayer requests. Maybe some of you saw that. Maybe some of you were praying. Praying for my preparation and presentation of that. Some of the responses that I got <clears throat> were kind of like, well, I'm glad it's you, Ken. Uh, you're in the battle now because I'm studying about spiritual warfare and talking about that. And I understand that, but kind of similar to Barclay and this aspect of being a role model or not, is the fact that not just me talking on this subject, but if you can hear my voice, you are in a spiritual war. You are in a battle. Or even if you have fallen asleep already, you're still in the battle. Anyone who has been born, any human being who's been born, has been or is in the battle, a spiritual battle, in a spiritual war. There's a famous quote, which I don't have the exact quote, by C.S. Lewis about how <clears throat> there are two errors or two extremes that we can go with. And the, he says the devils, uh, the devil or the demons are happy with each, either one. One is basically to ignore spiritual reality, ignore that there is an enemy, ignore that there are demons. And the other extreme is to, to know about it and be obsessed with it, obsessed with the demonic, obsessed with the enemy. Now, teaching on this topic this morning, obviously we're, we're not ignoring it. Uh, and on the other hand, we do not want to be or become obsessed with the demonic, with evil spirits or that aspect of reality. Neither fascinated with it or terrified by it. We want to have the balance that Scripture has as it talks about this subject. Because as you read through, and I did this, especially thinking of the New Testament, you read through, the New Testament is littered with these references to demons or to Satan or to the battle. Uh, as you read through, you go, oh, here it is. But it's almost, sometimes it's almost often, it's offhanded comments. Satan is not the focus of Scripture. Satan is not one of the main characters in Scripture. It's something that we need to be aware of, the battle, uh, but not to be focused on. I need to mention that I am not an expert in spiritual warfare. I wouldn't be surprised if some of you here have more, let's say, more experience with, um, I don't know, demonic activities, like uh, more, um, what's the word, uh, paranormal things. Uh, I'm not an expert. We're not going to talk about, maybe you've heard others, or you've read, but we're not going to talk about the five levels of demonic activity. We're not going to talk about the seven strongholds of the enemy. We're not going to talk about the hierarchical structure of the forces of Satan. We're not going to talk about how to have a successful uh, deliverance ministry. Um, I don't know about these things. We're going to look at what Scripture says. Um, 
Some of these things that you read, that you hear about, that you hear people talk about, they might be true, but they might be extensions from Scripture, and so I'm not sure. Um, I'm going to stick with what God says for, for, this, for this message. This is how he's led. Now, when you hear the term spiritual warfare, maybe you think of, there's probably certain things that you think of. I've seen, maybe you have too, I've seen the movie The Exorcist about 20-some years ago. It was like a, I don't, know if it was, I don't remember. I've seen the movie. I've never been involved in an exorcism. I was going to say that I've never seen an exorcism, but Kasha reminded me that when we were in Uganda about four years ago of uh, something that was going on. I was speaking in a church of, uh, where a colleague of ours is the pastor, and after the service, we're just hanging out, talking to people, and then I realized... There's a woman on the floor, and the pastor is casting a demon out of her. Um, and people are just <laughs> milling around, walking around. That was the bizarre part of it. It was just kind of normal. I don't know if it was successful. We didn't hang around for that. Um, but the war and the enemy, it seems like usually, at least in this country, is more subtle than that kind of dramatic paranormal stuff. I want to read a quote by um, a guy named Dean Sherman. He was with YWAM for decades. He was the one who taught on spiritual warfare. And this is what he writes. <clears throat> Most spiritual warfare takes place in the human mind. It involves recognizing when a thought is not righteous or when it does not agree with God's truth. Two mental strongholds are extremely common today among Christians and non-Christians alike. Thoughts of inferiority and thoughts of condemnation. Ephesians 6 tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against spiritual forces. Spiritual forces that, in large part it seems like, attack our minds, that the battle often is how we think, how we feel, our will, how we decide about things. Just a couple examples from Scripture that Paul talks about. 1 Corinthians 7, 5, he talks about, uh, I'm going to, and I'll, I'll mention a lot of Scriptures. If you're taking notes, that'd be great to write these down. You might not have time to look them all up as I'm going. But 1 Corinthians 7, 5, Paul is talking to married couples. He says, uh, if, as a married couple, if you fast, you know, be sure to come together, meaning physically, physical intimacy. Why? So that, um, so that the Satan won't be able to tempt you. Okay? Satan tempts us. We know that. 1 Timothy 3.6. Uh, this is in a passage about qualifications for elders. He said that a new... A new Christian, you shouldn't put a new Christian in the position of elder because they might become proud and the devil would cause him to fall. So we're going to be referencing a bunch of what I think are significant scriptures today and uh, share some thoughts about the battle. First, um, because we're in a battle, we need to know the enemy. We need to know the one, whether we're fighting against him, the one who is fighting against us and working against us. So some, as I said, we don't want to fixate. I said we don't want to focus. We'll focus for a little bit so that we understand, make sure that we understand what Scripture says about, about Satan. But we don't want to fixate or be obsessed with him. But just some um, aspects of Satan. He's... He's evil. He's not only evil, he's cruel. He's consistent. He's observant. Um, he's patient. Jesus called him a murderer from the beginning and the father of lies in John 8.44. In John 10.10, Jesus, as he contrasts his purpose, Jesus' purpose was to give abundant life, he contrasts that with the thief, which I believe is Satan, Who's the thief's purpose is what? To steal, kill, and destroy. The name, the very name Satan uh, is translated accuser or adversary. And the name devil means the slanderer. 
And we have a lot of other names in the New Testament. There's in Revelation 12, he's called the serpent and the dragon. In um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's a place where um, Jesus is, it's said he's accused of, of being in, uh, empowered by the devil himself because he's able to cast out demons. There's a section on each of those three gospels. The devil is called Beelzebul or the prince of demons. Uh, in John, he's called the ruler of this world. In Ephesians 2, Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. He's referred to as the evil one. In 2 Corinthians 4, he's called the god of this world. He hates God. He hates people, us who have been created in God's image, whom God loves. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul says that Satan has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. And in Matthew, Mark, Luke, Jesus tells the parable of the soils, the four soils. The, the farmer spreads the seed, the seed is the word of God, and uh, the seed fell on four different types of soils. The first soil that's mentioned uh, talks about the birds taking the seed away, and Jesus says, that is Satan. That's part of Satan's work as he takes away the seed, he takes away the word of God that people are not able to believe and not able to be saved. Ephesians 2.2, Satan is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. And 1 John 5.19, the world around us is under the control of the evil one. So we see those scriptures and we might get kind of, wow, maybe overwhelmed by the power that Satan has. He's the ruler of this world. Uh, he's in control of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. And really that is one of Satan's schemes to take the truth and to get us to think that Satan is more than he is. That he has more ability, that he has more power than he actually has. So next I want to talk about limits, Satan's limits. Because one of the things, when we talk about Satan, and even when we see Satan referenced sometimes in the New Testament, we can get the idea that he's everywhere. Whereas when we use the name Satan, as I'm using it, it often refers, it's kind of shorthand for Satan and all the demonic forces under him. This is what we say, this is what, oh, Satan was after me. Really? He was after you? He was spending time with you? Yeah, we read in like Luke 4, Satan was tempting Jesus, right? Well, yeah, we could see Satan spending his time and energy on Jesus, but on me? Maybe, I don't know, but he has his minions. So that's partly what we mean, that Satan or his forces are working against us. Because there is no indication in Scripture that Satan is omnipresent. That any being in the universe except for God is omnipresent. And so we should not think of Satan as being everywhere, being able to, um, being everywhere. It's important to remember that Satan is simply a created being, as angels are, as we are. And when I say simply, I don't want to, I don't mean to demean, we're not here to mock spiritual forces. We see this in what Second Peter and Jude saying, you know, don't talk that way about spiritual forces. The angels don't mock um, spiritual forces. But we do need to talk in terms of reality and, and what his limits are. He is not omnipresent. He's also not omniscient, meaning uh, that he knows everything. We tend to, a lot of us anyway, tend to think that Satan knows everything that's going on. I don't know exactly, we don't have description exactly what he knows. We've got to uh, sense. We read in, say, Isaiah, um, was Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, um, we won't go there now, but there are these descriptions of a human ruler in each of these passages that, as you read on, it kind of transcends. This is not just this human ruler. This is the demonic ruler behind him, that he was uh, the greatest created being, and that he was there in the Garden of Eden. Okay, that wasn't the Prince of Tyre who was there. This is Satan that's described, and he's described in these 
um, I don't want to say magnificent ways, but he was a great created being. But there's no indication in Scripture that he knows everything. There's no indication that he knows that he can read your mind or that he knows the future. Maybe he can, you know, if assuming that he is observant and he's been around for thousands of years and that he can learn, yeah, so, you know, he's watching Jeff and he sees that Jeff does certain things and certain things bother Jeff. And so he tries to attack Jeff in a certain way because he knows these things about Jeff. He doesn't necessarily know all Jeff's thoughts inside his brain, but he can see what Jeff does, how he responds to things, how he talks to people. Psalm 7-9. Psalm 7-9 says, Oh, uh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you, speaking to God, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. God is the one who knows minds. God is the one who knows hearts. Not Satan. Isaiah 46, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. And I'll start, start in verse 8, Isaiah 46, 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God alone knows the future. He knows the end from the beginning. He determines the end and the beginning. Again, Satan is a created being. So to say that he can't read our minds exactly doesn't mean that, you know, as I said, that he doesn't know about us. And also, it seems clear that he can make suggestions to us. I don't know how all this works, but he does. He is called the tempter. Paul talks about that. We see in passages like Mark 8, where Jesus is telling the disciples, the first time he tells them, I'm going to be crucified and rise again. And, Je- and Peter, like, Jesus, no, don't talk that way. And what is, how does Jesus respond to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. He calls Peter Satan. Does, is he meaning that at that moment, Satan was possessed by the devil? Peter. That, well, Thank you. Does he mean that uh, that Peter was I'm pointing at you? Does he mean that Peter was possessed by the devil at that point? No, but I think what's going on is Peter was taking suggested thoughts from the enemy and uh, contradicting Jesus with Satan's thoughts. Jesus tells him, "You're not thinking God's thoughts here," and I, this happens to us, doesn't it? That things get suggested to us that are not from God, that are not from the Holy Spirit. So Satan is not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. And though he does seem to be very powerful, the, the descriptions of the ruler of this world, he also is he's not omnipotent. And it seems silly for me to say that he's, omnip- he's not omnipotent. As if he's close. No, he's not close. The kind of analogy that comes to mind is me and an ant on the floor. And it's a poor analogy because I didn't create that ant. And even that, that distance between me and the ant still is um, not great enough to indicate the distance between God the creator and Satan, the, the one that he created. The only power that Satan has is the power that God allows him to have. We see a couple of illustrations of this in Scripture. One is in the story of Job, Job 1 and 2. 
Um, Satan is questioning, basically he's questioning God's goodness. And um, God is pointing out his servant Job, how, how righteous he is. And Satan says, yeah, well, it's because you're, you're so good to him. That's the only reason. You're not in other words, you're not worthy of being worshipped or followed or, or served. Um, and God allows Satan to afflict Job. Uh, he gives him that power in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, Satan comes back and God gives Satan the power to touch Job's body then, to affect him physically as well. But he can't do that unless God gives him that power, gives him that authority. That's a whole other subject with the, whole, with the story of Job. But we also see this in um, Luke chapter 22. Um, this the story, Luke, yeah, let's turn, Luke 22, verse 31-32. This is shortly before Jesus is arrested and crucified, tried, crucified. Luke 22, 31 and 32. And this kind of, I guess, until I was studying this, kind of this little a little bit bizarre passage that I kind of overlooked in the past. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. This, this term in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you is a rare word demanded in the sense, not that he has the authority, but demanded in the sense, some translations translated ask. So it's ask in a demanding way, and it's an urgent begging for something. So Satan has to get permission to do whatever he did to Peter, to sift Peter like wheat, to try him in this way. And some of us ask the question, why would God allow the devil to influence us, to touch us, to harm us? And I want to give three, um, three or four kind of illustrations of this. One is an example from more modern, modern life. Um, at International Messengers, the, uh, the president of the organization, his name is Darwin Anderson, and he was telling us about a story of, he was just hearing from friends of his that were missionaries. They were missionaries in China. The man's name is Steve, and Steve was uh, leading an organization, co-leading an organization that was training underground pastors in China. And they'd been working for decades. But then they ran into problems, one of Steve's co-founder uh, got kind of taken out of the ministry by divorce. And then Steve himself su uh, suffered a nervous breakdown. His counselor said, yes, it's too much stress. You've got to reduce the stress in your life. So they realized we've got to revamp this ministry. We can't be involved there. So they decided, okay, we will train up a team, a leadership team of Chinese, which makes, makes sense, but in this case, the, the Chinese leaders had about a fourth or fifth grade education. Okay, so they did that. They trained this leadership team, and they trained the team saying, you need to develop your own material. So the, the, the Chinese leaders developed their own materials to be able to lead, to be able to train underground pastors. Well, shortly after that, it was about three years ago that China clamped down on Western missionaries, kicked out the Western missionaries. Um, this team now, this local team of Chinese missionary tra uh, pastor trainers, what we're told are re now reaching millions of people because here's how I see this happening that the enemy was working against this organization, working against the leaders of this organization, meaning this guy Steve and the co-founder and whoever else. Um, and they had to pull back. They had to change their ministry. They weren't able to do what they were doing as if Satan was 
working against them. So they trained up the local leaders that were able to continue working once the missionaries were kicked out. Not only continue working, but from what we hear, the ministry was spread all the more. So what I see in this is Satan is allowed to do certain things, but he's only allowed to do them, almost as if he's... And it, it's not like, well, Satan did this, and so God had to do this. No, God had the big picture all along. He allowed Satan to do this, and it furthered the work that God was doing with the underground pastors in China. Let's look at a couple examples from Scripture. I won't turn there, but you know the story with Joseph, how he was sold into slavery by, by his brothers in Genesis, and he went through a very hard time, right? But eventually he rose to the place of second to the Pharaoh. And we come to chapter 50, verse 20 in Genesis. He says, You meant evil against me, but God meant it good for good. He's speaking to his brothers who had sold him into slavery when he was a young man. They had done that for evil, and I believe the, the enemy behind them had instigated that, that he was sold into slavery. This was an evil thing for him. But what was the result of this? The result of this, it was that he was raised to the position of second in the land of that, that world, the Egyptian empire and, and their, the surrounding environment. Okay, good for him, right? Well, that's not, the, that's not the, the big picture. The big picture is because Joseph was in that position, he was able to interpret Pharaoh's dream about the seven years, the good years, and then the seven lean years of famine. And they were able to prepare during the seven years so that they had food for the seven years of famine. And they were able to feed the known world at that time. Who was part of that world? Jacob's family, Joseph's family. Jacob's family and his, his brothers in Egypt were able to survive because of what had happened. Jacob's family was the line of the Messiah that Jesus would come through. Because, through Satan, I think, by his work, Joseph was sold into slavery. God raised him up to this position so that the world would, in essence, the world would be physically saved and the line of the Messiah would be continued. Okay, so that's a couple examples. One other example, the preeminent example, preeminent example of Satan being allowed to do certain things, but God having the big picture of what he's doing is in the cross. Satan, his greatest victory was what? Was having Jesus put to, jet, put to death. But this wasn't something where Jesus was put to death and God had to kind of like, ooh, I need a plan B. This was God's plan A. This is how God worked. It's almost like God uses Satan as his tool to accomplish his will. And we don't necessarily see that in our own lives because we've got kind of a tunnel vision, just being human and finite like we are. But when things are pulled back and when we're in heaven, we'll get to see how God was using all these things. That How could God use this, this horrible tragedy here? How could this happen? How could this? And we'll see how God worked out his plan. We'll see how God brought glory to himself through these things. Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. He says, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Right? He calls it a messenger from Satan um, to torment me. Surely Satan wanted whatever this thing was, was a physical ailment or something else. Satan wanted to torment Paul with that. But he says, to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Well, that certainly wasn't Satan's desire. His desire was to torment him, but not to keep Paul from becoming proud. Satan loves for us to be proud. Satan is proud. That is his sin. He wants us to be proud. We can't be in the battle, affecting the battle, if we ourselves are, pride, are proud. This was what God was wanting to do through this messenger of Satan. God used the messenger of Satan to work on Paul's pride, to keep him humble. Surely he does that with us as well. He uses Satan's means, his weapons, 
to do what he wants to do in our lives. So we can trust that if God, would, if God allows Satan to do something in our lives, God has something greater going on, something greater that he's up to. Romans 8.28 is true. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. I want to give you another quote from this guy, Dean Sherman, and I'll read it a couple times so that it can sink in. He says, We will never fear the devil if we know that God is sovereign, immeasurably great, and powerful, on the one hand, yet kind, gentle, and unswerving in his love and commitment to us. These are two aspects of God that we need to keep in mind. Let me read this again. Let me get a drink first. <clears throat> we will never fear the devil if we know that God is sovereign, immeasurably great and powerful, yet kind, gentle, and unswerving in his love and commitment to us. So we've talked about the enemy and some of his limitations. Now it's important, I think, to talk about our role in the battle. And there are many things that we could, we could mention. Looking at my notes, I'm gonna, I've got a few things here. And I don't even talk about some things that are important, like evangelism is spiritual war. Worship, what we're doing this morning, is a form of our, our spiritual warfare. Um, but we see this in three different writers in the New Testament. We see it in James 4, we see it in um, 1 Peter 5 and Ephesians 6, where basically these three writers are all telling us to resist the enemy, resist the devil, resist that roaring lion. So here are some ways that we can resist. First, I want to start off with two major lies, I think, of the enemy. One is that he tells us God doesn't really love you. God doesn't really love you. Now, we all have spiritual wounds, meaning things that happen where God didn't do what we thought he should do. <clears throat> where we feel like God has let us down. And usually that's a loss of some kind. Maybe it's a loss of relationship. Maybe it's a loss of health. Maybe it's a job loss, economic troubles, or even just the loss of a dream. And if we don't deal with these kind of wounds that we have, they can feed Satan's lie about God not really loving us. We need to bring these kind of wounds that we have, we need to bring them into the light. We need to share them, I think it's helpful to share them with a Christian brother or sister, to bring light onto the wound and to, to expose the wound to the truth. And getting someone else involved helps to do that. The other lie, the other, another major lie anyway, is that sin doesn't really matter. Okay, we know that's not true. Sin matters, but we can accept this lie that sin doesn't really matter. That there can be an area of obedience in our lives, in our hearts, that we don't take seriously. Maybe you have been fighting with that and dealing with that and you've just gotten discouraged with it. Or maybe that you think that you have a right to hang on to whatever that area is. Maybe it's something sexual. Maybe it is bitterness. Maybe it is pride or envy or anger. Turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, verse 26 and 27. Look at it.
Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So it seems like in some sense when we hang on to something, a sin, anger is the example here, that we give an opportunity for Satan to have a place in our lives. When we hold on to a sin or when we think that it doesn't matter, that gives the devil a place in our lives in some way. So just like we, we talked about, bring it into the light. When you realize that there's an area of like that in your life, expose that. Bring in someone else. Bring in a Christian brother, Christian sisters, to be aware of that, to expose that to the truth, to pray with you, to know with you, to speak truth with you. Let others help to bear your burden. Okay, so I, those are two lies. Let's go on to some other ways that we can be resisting the enemy. We talk about bringing these things into the light. Something that I'm not as, uh, I don't know as well, but to rebuke a suspected evil spirit. Now, you can read some people that will tell you what you need to do if there's an evil spirit. You need to find out their name. Okay. Um, we see examples of what Jesus did, but we don't have like techniques for this kind of, this kind of thing. But we do see Jesus rebuking evil spirits. We see Paul doing it. Acts chapter 16, verse 18, the story is he's in Philippi. And it's, I don't know, it's kind of a weird, there's a lot of weird, weird elements to stories in the Bible. There's this girl that's following him. She's got a, she's possessed and she's telling fortunes and Anyway, she's following Paul and his friends around saying, listen to them. They're from God. Listen to their message. And it said it went on day after day. So it was a few days before Paul did this, but finally he got uh, exacerbated and he turns, frustrated, he turns around and he says, um, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. That's what he said, and the demon came out. So what I'm suggesting for you, if you sense that there is an evil spirit where you are involved in something, you can rebuke that spirit. There's not a magic formula. You know, we saw that, we see that elsewhere, like in the book of Acts. Book of Acts, yeah, where these where these exorcists were copying Paul, trying to cast out demons, and the, the guy that they were trying to cast it out beat him up. And I said, you know, Jesus, I know. They were, they were saying, um, I cast you out in the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And the demon says, well, Paul I know and Jesus I know, but I don't know who you are. And so they, they attacked, the demon attacked that person, the, the, those exorcists. There's not a magic formula. They thought they had the magic formula. We, I'm talking to you who belong to Jesus Christ. We belong to Jesus Christ. And in the name and in the authority or in the blood or however, we have the authority, not of our own strength, but in Jesus Christ to rebuke evil spirits. So, and Kasha and I have done this on a, occasion when it seems like there is a presence there and is how do we know maybe it's something psychological going on in us maybe it's something emotional maybe it was bad tacos or bad pizza the night before that we're feeling a certain way i don't know what's why not step out and trust god in this if you sense well maybe this is what's going on what's the worst that would happen you know you say you say this and and the angels that are there look at you and they kind of giggle. Oh, how cute. They think something's there that's not there. That's the worst. But what if, not what if, God has given us authority over evil spirits in his power. Now at the beginning, um, I gave... Uh, 
I mentioned how there's a lot of references to the demonic in the New Testament, but how that's not the focus. What is the focus in Scripture, especially in the New Testament? What is the focus? The focus is on God. The focus is on our sin and what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And the focus is on now, as his followers, how are we to live? That's where the focus is. Yeah, in our meeting this morning, um, before, before the service, Adam talked about the greatest commandments, or the second greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God. Love the Lord, basically love the Lord your God with all you have and, and all you are, right? Pursue the Lord with all that you have. I think that Paul, as we read Paul's writings, his favorite concept is this phrase, in Christ. He uses this all the time. In Christ, in the Lord, in the Lord Jesus, in Him, throughout His, throughout his letters. It's not just a cliche like we throw it on. It means, it's talking about how when we trust Christ, we, are, we become connected to Him. We become unified with Him. We dwell in Him. Jesus uses this picture in John 15 of the grapevine and the branches. And the, grape, the branches are so connected to the, to the vine. The life that is in the branch comes from the vine. The fruit that a branch will produce comes because it is connected to the vine. And we need to seek to stay in that place of connectedness with Jesus Christ. We are always dependent on him. And so I think that this is part of spiritual warfare for us to pursue our relationship with Jesus Christ, pursue our relationship with God, maintaining that. The second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew 22. When Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, when he addressed dissension in the church, when he addressed division in the church, he did not tell them, now I want you to rebuke a spirit of division that wasn't his focus. What was his focus? He told them, live in harmony. Be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. He was commanding them to love, especially brothers and sisters. Loving each other is part of spiritual warfare. Kasha, could you, could you pass those out? So um, with our organization, this is part of our spiritual warfare training is we have a sheet of, of the one another's in the New Testament. And there's, I don't know, 30 or 40 of them. This is a concern for God, how we are with each other. Not just love one another, confess your sins to one another, submit to one another, encourage one another, on and on. This is something that would be helpful for us to study, to look through, to read through. So while Kosh is passing those out, uh, I want to talk about one more aspect of what we can do in the battle. In Ephesians 6, you're familiar with the armor of God. And two parts of the armor I want to mention. The belt of truth is the first thing that's mentioned. And the sword of the Spirit is the, the, the last thing that's mentioned before prayer. Ephesians 6, 14 and 17. We need to use God's word in resisting the devil. We need to have God's word, his scripture, to speak to ourselves, to speak to others, as well as speak to the spiritual realm. I want to share just a few scriptures with you that I find encouraging when it comes to discouragement in life, when it, be, when it comes to being what, discouraged by the enemy, I would say. One of the scriptures is, it's kind of become one of my new favorite scriptures, I guess. Uh, and you can turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. Second Kings chapter 6 and verse 16. Uh, starting at verse 16. 
So the setting is um, with Elisha the prophet. And Elisha has been, uh, God has been revealing to Elisha where the Syrians were going to attack. And so he's warned, Elisha would warn the king, oh, they're going to attack here, so don't be there. And the Syrians would come in and, wait a minute, what? Um, and they'd keep, this kept happening. And so finally, um, someone told the king of Syria, you know, Elisha is letting the king know, so we need to go attack him. So they go to attack uh, Elisha. They go to the town where he is. And uh, this great army is there to get him. Um, and Elisha's servant was stressed by this, seeing this great army. And we come to chapter 6, verse 16. He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots on fire all around Elisha. We don't know what's going on around us. We can't see it. Um, but this is just an encouragement to me that God is doing this kind of thing. That there are angels around us. That God is using his angels along with us. Turn to Hebrews chapter uh, 1 verse 14. I wish we'd been here last Sunday to watch Skip hear him talking about Hebrews. Part of what's going on in the book of Hebrews is the writer is talking about how much greater God is than these other things. And in chapter 1, greater than angels. Hebrews 1, verse 14. He's talking about angels. And he says, the writer says, Hebrews 1, 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels... God uses angels to serve us. Not that they're, you know, we tell them what to do. It's nothing like that. We're never told to talk to angels. We're never told to pray to angels or anything like that. We're told not to. But just the aspect of the angels that God has created, he's using them to serve us. So when you get stressed, when you get worried, fear comes in, realizing God's got his angels here. I don't know that he needs angels. He can just say something and do it. But the fact that there are angels working, doing God's will. Okay, let me share a couple other scriptures with you. 1 John 4.4. 4. First John 4.4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And I've got, I've got more scriptures. Let me just give you two. If you're taking notes, you can write them down. I want to look at one more, Romans 8.1, and then I'll just list the others for you. Romans 8, 1. Romans 8, 1. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. So if you're sensing condemnation, if you're hearing condemnation, that's not from God. Conviction of sin, yes, if that happens. The Holy Spirit does that. But condemnation, that's not from God. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All right, let me list three other scriptures you can look up, scriptures I find encouraging. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 to 21. Hebrews 4, 16. Ephesians 3.20. And now I've got something else I'd like Kasha to pass out to you. 
This is something that we have at IM. Uh, we, we give to all of our short-term missionaries before they go out. It, it's, I think the title of it is something like Psalms to Dispel the Darkness. So these are psalms that, let's say, something has you fearful. There's a bump in the night. Or something that's a little, you know, you sense something. Uh, I don't have my wallet, but I, I keep this card in my wallet so that I can be reminded and read these psalms. There's several psalms there. I don't know, maybe 20 psalms? I don't know. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, good. We ran out. That's good. <laughs> All right. That's what I have for you. I want to pray. And if, if anyone would like to talk about any of these issues, any of these things, we'd love to talk with you, love to pray for you and with you. Okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that tells us everything we need to know uh, and helps us to understand all that you want us to be able to understand. Thank you for the encouragement we have. We, we see the reality that we have an enemy. I don't know if I'd say you have an enemy because nothing and no one compares to you, but we do have an enemy and you show us him and you show us his limits. You show us how to, what, how to resist thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths of your scripture that we um, that we're not under condemnation with you. But your love and your grace are toward us. Thank you that you are all powerful God that we can trust in, that we can rest in. And not only trust in and rest in, but you want to use us in the battle winning back those who are under the enemy's control. Thank you, God, for your presence in our lives. I pray for my brothers and sisters here. Lord, that you would lead us to deeper and deeper dependence on you. Dependence on you that ushers forth, leads, that results in joy and peace and love and grace. Thank you, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.